This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host Jay Sampath. When it comes to taxes, there is one definitive trend that we can see in all countries. The wealthiest entities, be it billionaires or multinational corporations, enjoy the lowest effective rates of taxation and this is happening in a context where governments around the world are cutting down on welfare programs in the name of austerity because they don't have the resources ostensibly to sustain them so to reduce inequality a fair and effective taxation is absolutely critical and yet largely missing The European Union Tax Observatory has just come out with a report on this subject titled Global Tax Evasion Report. This is the first of its kind report and it summarizes the work of more than 100 researchers worldwide and quantifies the magnitude and dynamics of tax evasion. And to tell us more about this report and where we stand in the battle to curb tax evasion and what more needs to be done We have with us Quentin Parinello, senior policy advisor at the EU Tax Observatory Paris. Quentin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Quentin to start with, uh, I was just wondering if you can tell us uh, give us an overview of how big is the scale of tax evasion worldwide today and how much of it is evasion and how much of it is avoidance. That's a very fair question and uh if you ask a lawyer, you will see that they will see two very different you know categories between tax evasion that is illegal and tax avoidance which is uh, legal and where you would you know need to change uh, the rules we see a continuum between tax evasion and tax avoidance with a huge gray zone in the middle where policy action is needed because in fact the current design of the tax systems across the globe right now are exacerbating inequality because the 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 people who are most benefiting from it as you said in your introductions are the wealthiest people the companies that are most benefiting from it as you said in your introduction are multinational companies and what we see essentially is that tax evasion is bad for equality tax evasion is bad for democracy but it's often portrayed as inevitable this is not true of course tax evasion is not a law of nature this is the result of political choices and in this report what we're trying to do is to evaluate the impact of these choices now it's always difficult to put a definite number on the size of tax evasion for a very simple reason well we're dealing with you know hidden uh, behaviors uh, we're dealing with uh, with behaviors that are difficult to quantify because they're supposed not to be in the light what we're trying to do here is quantify how actions by different governments across the globe how much they could yield by tackling tax evasion is it putting an end to tax evasion we don't think so but that could actually uh, generate a lot of revenues and we show that two of uh, the policy recommendations we make that is uh, an increase a global minimum tax on billionaires and a better global minimum tax on corporations those two measures just those two measures they could generate more than 500 billion dollars per year this is a lot of money and to give you an idea of how much this is this could cover the needs of uh, funding for climate adaptation for developing countries uh, per year so we're not dealing with a fringe issue here we're dealing with essential issues 
that could generate hundreds of billions of dollars to fight inequality and climate change. Right. I mean, those are really uh, very strong points, uh, Quentin. I really appreciate that. I mean, one about climate adaptation, which goes to the heart of uh, something which affects every single uh, person on this planet. The other, of course, is inequality. And both these issues, climate change and inequality, are uh, central to quality of life uh, issues around the world. Now, in your uh, response, you made a reference to the global minimum tax of uh, 15% on MNCs. Now, I was just wondering, uh, the report talks about these two uh, uh, initiatives, which are fairly recent, and their contrasting uh, efficacy or outcomes. One is uh, the end to bank secrecy, automatic exchange of bank information. And the other is this global minimum tax of 15%. Uh, the one has been successful, the other has been not so successful. Can you please talk a little bit about uh, what are the factors that have been at play in these two measures, how effective they have been, and so on? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the consequences of saying that uh, tax evasion is not a law of nature, this is the result of policy choices, it means that tackling tax evasion is possible as long as you make the right policy choices. And we're, in this report, evaluating the quality of this response. If you like Western movies, uh, it's a bit like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, the good over the past 10 years has been, as you just said, the uh, the, the very effective impact against bank secrecy. In 2016, a global go governance around the globe introduced what they call the automatic exchange of information, which requires banks to uh, submit info bank information of their non-residents and require governments to exchange this information between one another. Before the introduction of such measure, a large part of offshore wealth was in tax, meaning that if you wanted to have a bank account in Switzerland, say, or in the Caymans, and you were an Indian resident, it was very difficult for India to access, to know that you had you know, a bank account in Switzerland or uh, in the Caymans. Now, with this measure in place, Switzerland and the Caymans are required to exchange that information with uh, India. And what we see is that the introduction of such measure divided the amount of untaxed offshore wealth by a factor of three. It's very effective. And it shows that when there's the political will to do so, we can make rapid and impressive progress against tax evasion. So that's the good. The bad, as you said, is uh, a broken promise and the broken promise of the global minimum tax on corporations. Why do we call it a global uh, a broken promise? It's because the idea, the philosophy behind uh, the global minimum tax on corporation was revolutionary. For the first time, government agreed across the globe, they agreed that multinationals should pay a minimum amount of tax on their profits. There's some tax that they should pay on their profits. This is a revolution. No governance has said that before. The second issue is uh, the design. The design of that global minimum tax was also a revolution, revolutionary. Because if one country refused to apply that minimum tax of 15%, another country could step in and say, okay, I'm going to tax it instead of you. So that would make no difference for the company whether they pay taxes to one government or another. So in theory, the, the global minimum tax on corporation was a revolution. In practice, however, and this is why we call it a broken promise, what we see is that there's been a number of loopholes that have been introduced, even sometimes after the agreement in 2021 around that global minimum tax, and that these loopholes, they divided the expected yield of the minimum tax by a factor of two. So we're expecting around 10% additional global 
uh, corporate tax revenues. And with all these loopholes, we're expecting just below 5%. So that's one. And the other problem is that these loopholes, they may recreate a race to the bottom in corporate income tax, uh, which was you know, one of the initial uh, objectives of that global minimum tax was to put a floor on that race to the bottom and say, okay, multinationals should not pay less than 15%. Now, with the multiplication of these loopholes, they will end up in a, in a lot of uh, scenarios paying less than 15%. So this is why we think this is the, a bad section of you know um, international efforts against tax evasion. And finally, you didn't mention it in your question, but I just wanted to uh, stop for one second here. There's, there's the ugly in our scenario, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the ugly is where international action has not done anything yet. And this is on the taxation of billionaires, where we're seriously lacking a huge effort on making sure billionaires pay at least a minimum uh, amount of taxes. Right. So, uh, Quentin, uh, that was a very uh, detailed explanation of the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is a, which is a very uh, good framework to sort of get a hold of this. I was just wondering, when you mentioned uh, loopholes uh, for, uh, for, for, for corporates making... Uh, who are supposed to make uh, a global minimum tax of 15%. Can you give an example of what kind of loopholes we are talking about here? I'm going to give you two examples of the loopholes that exist in the in this agreement of the global minimum tax for corporations. One is called substance carve-outs. And it means that if you do have economic substance, meaning if you do have employees or if you do have uh, factories in your countries, then the multinational is allowed to pay less than 15% to deduct a large amount uh, of their tax base that will not be taxed. And to a certain extent, it could even be 0% if the multinational design structure its tax affairs so that to have a lot of, uh, a lot of substance in a country with 0% tax rates. So that's an example of, you know, we put a, a floor, a minimum floor of 15%. And then in the negotiation, they say, okay, that floor doesn't apply to uh, multinational have substance, economic substance activities there. What so is meant by economic? Uh, what is meant by economic substance? Economic activity, like what? What is this substance? It's uh, so it's uh, payroll, so the amount of money you give to your employees, and it's uh, tangible assets, so how much you value your your factories. So it's it's very uh, brick and mortar and employee basically uh, factors that will allow you to uh, pay less. Uh, taxes and that could even you know further and change the nature of the race to the bottom in corporate taxes because you could before sh artificially shift paper profits to the Cayman Islands for instance now if you move uh, your factories and if you move uh, your employees to a tax haven so unlikely Cayman Islands because it's difficult to move a lot of factories to Cayman Islands for uh, the, you know the, the the size the geographical size of Cayman Islands but say another tax haven that offers zero percent rate. To a certain extent, the global deal allows for that. So that's the first example. And the second example is that, and it's actually very recent, it was uh, agreed after the original deal, there are a large number of tax credits that were allowed, that were qualified under the deal, which means that you may pay 15%, but some of the tax credit on research, on low carbon transition will be allowed and will not be counted as reduction uh, in taxes. So that raises a question, of course, uh, tax credit to incentivize green transition, low carbon transition is a good thing. It's better than, you know, just uh, straightfully reducing your corporate income tax. But that poses the same problem in terms of reduce, reducing tax revenues. 
And that may shift the corporate race to the bottom. And instead of seeing countries, you know, slashing their corporate income tax, they will compete on tax credits. And we're already seeing this in the US. The Inflation Reduction, Reduction Act is one proof that very recently Ireland introduced a number of tax credits that are supposed to decrease uh, the, uh, the amount of taxes paid by multinational in Ireland. And the, the control over these tax credits is very limited. So this is a risk we're seeing in terms of, you know, seeing a shift in, co- in competition in corporate income tax. Right. Okay. Tax credits and this economic substance uh, loophole are two really uh, troubling uh, developments. Uh, Quentin, I was also wondering about another observation which I saw in the report, which is that uh, the report points out that tax evasion is increasingly happening domestically uh, through the use of shell companies to avoid uh, income taxes and so on. So I was just wondering, uh, from my understanding, how is this a domestic problem given that these shell companies are typically incorporated in tax havens, like you said, uh, they gave the example of Cayman Islands, uh, Bahamas, Mauritius, and so on. So there is still a transcontinental or an international footprint involved here. So isn't this something that needs to be fixed internationally, like say, by putting this entire tax haven system out of business, uh, so to speak? How is this a domestic uh, issue? On on this particular section, um, what we're seeing, as I said, the introduction of the automatic exchange of bank information has to a large extent reduced offshore tax evasion. It's not perfect. There are still a, a number of limited loopholes. But uh, if you own companies through an offshore uh, shell company, in theory, tax authorities re- receive that information. So that's one thing. Then the question that happens, uh, the question we ask is what happens if you have a shell company in your own country? And for billionaires, because this is this is specifically on very rich people that it would apply. You have a number of legislations, including, for instance, in the EU, where if you do own a shell company in, uh, let's say, France, you're a French billionaire. And if you receive dividends directly in your bank account, you will pay a capital income tax. In France, that would be 30%. If you receive that dividend payment through a shell company, most of it, most of it, vast majority of it will be tax exempted because this is how the tax system is designed. And we're typically hearing something that is not illegal, but there's a bit of a, they're using shell companies for a purpose that is not its original purpose. Why is it tax exempted? It's because it's originally, originally, sorry, designed for multinational companies to avoid double taxation. But when billionaires use it, it's, you know, reframing the original purpose. And that actually explains why billionaires pay in proportion less taxes than ordinary citizens. Here in that particular tax design, there's not necessarily a tax haven involved. You you would see a a French billionaire, uh, for instance, enjoying a very, very, very low rate tax tax rate, effective tax rate, because it's using, they're using a, uh, a shell company, but the shell company may be incorporated in France. Uh, so this is a shift also in, you know, the dynamics of tax evasion where we've made progress on offshore, but then the new issue right now is harmful tax competition right. when it comes to individuals. Right. So when you say shell company, then uh, the example of France, uh, the French billionaire, which you just uh, mentioned. So are you saying uh, holding companies 
are essentially shell companies. You are referring to holding companies. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. So we're using shell company in that sense because they don't have economic substance. They're basically using that personal holding company as an alternative bank account. So they're storing money in it and then either reinvesting it, either buying things. So this is, you know, the purpose of a bank account. So there's no economic substance. And to give you an example, for instance, in the US, this is forbidden. And you have a personal holding company tax in the US that prevents billionaires from doing this. In Europe, this is not uh, the case. Billionaires in the US enjoy other kinds of tax exemptions, and they also have very low tax rates compared to ordinary citizens. But this is a shell company is not necessarily a company that is in an exotic islands with uh, palm trees and everything. Uh, this, of course, is a problem, but we're increasingly seeing domestic issues. And that is one of, you know, the sort of repurposing of uh, shell companies for personal holding companies that serves as, so to speak, alternative bank accounts. Right. So uh, from what you're saying, uh, Quentin, I understand that uh, these uh, shell companies are to a, to a great extent used by billionaires, individual uh, wealthy people, as in wealthy, wealthy individuals, so to speak, rather than multinational companies so much for their uh, personal requirement or personal wish to evade uh, taxes. And in this regard, one of the proposals in the report is a global minimum tax on billionaires equal to 2% of their wealth. So uh, I want you to basically just uh, uh, explain what you expect from this A. And secondly, how do you see this being implemented in the current international scenario, which is like, I don't know, you have, do you expect American and European billionaires uh, coming together under the tax regime of this kind alongside Russian and Chinese billionaires? Is that likely to happen? That's, that's a very fair question indeed. Um, what we're saying basically is that billionaires are very uh, organized and very good at structuring their wealth so that it does not generate taxable income. So for instance, storing dividends in a personal holding company is a way there is income generated, but it's not taxable income. And the, the higher you go in the distribution chain and the more fuzzy the limit between you know income and wealth gets. So you can either fight uh, to uh, decide what is a taxable income or not, or you can get the more comprehensive road, uh, which is to go for a net wealth tax. Uh, what we're pushing for that net wealth tax is to have a very, very high threshold. So we're just dealing with the taxpayers that are good at structuring their wealth so that it doesn't generate taxable income. We're not looking at ordinary citizens, like very, very high in, in the distribution. And for these people, yeah, we, we want to have a global minimum tax. So we're, we're starting with billionaires because this is where we have the most information. So administ administratively speaking, that will be the most easiest to, uh, you know, administer and, and to run. And we have, we want that wealth, ta that net wealth tax to have no exemption to make sure that we capture, uh, everything. Now, how can we do that? Uh, your question is, is this basically what I, what I hear in your sentences? Is this realistic? Can we expect, uh, global agreements on this? It's a definitely fair question. Now, if you look at the past 10 to 15 years, what we've seen with the end of bank secrecy, the, the rise of the global minimum, minimum tax for corporations, albeit all, you know, the loopholes are in this. We've seen two measures that were considered utopian a decade ago. No one would have bet that Swiss banks would give 
bank information on their clients. No one would have bet that the US and other countries would sign on a minimum tax on corporations. And yet here we are. So yes, what we're asking with a global minimum tax on billionaires is indeed to some extent uh, ambitious, but we think that this is part of a conversation moving forward. And this is also part of a number of world leaders actually asking for billionaires to be ta taxed. So you asked about the US, Joe Biden has introduced a number of times a global minimum tax on billionaires. This has not passed because he has no power in Congress so far. Uh, Lula in Brazil has pushed for a, a similar measure. Now, what we think indeed is that with the upcoming G20 in Brazil, it could be a good opportunity to make serious progress on this issue. So what we're asking, what we want is uh, the next G20 to actually call for a global minimum tax on uh, billionaires. How would that work? We would say that billionaires should pay at least 2% out of their wealth. They already pay to some extent a certain amount of personal income tax, but as I was saying before, they're very well at structuring their, uh, their wealth so that it doesn't generate a lot of taxable income, which means that the amount of taxes they pay right now is very limited. So basically what we want is to have top-up taxes based on their wealth so that it reaches 2% of their current wealth. And what we're saying is that this could yield an approximate $250 billion uh, per, years in, per year sorry, in, in 2023. Uh, so this is a measure that could generate serious revenues to tackle the inequality and the, and the climate crisis. Right. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you something with regard to the Indian uh, context, Quentin. So, I mean, it, it's one thing to take measures uh, to address tax deficits, you know, from corporates and billionaires by ensuring better compliance, uh, by ensuring uh, that we're plugging the various loopholes that you referred to earlier. But what about wealth uh, that has been generated through corruption, for instance, through crony capitalism? You know, what proportion of untaxed wealth or income is illegally obtained wealth that by design is going to circulate in a parallel uh, economy or a parallel circuit beyond the reach of the tax collectors. So how do we address this component of tax-free wealth? Is it by investigating the crime and then trying to recover the proceeds or is it by ensuring that there are no channels available for the easy circulation of such income to either through cell companies or by whatever means? How, how do we address this? It's, it's a very fair question. And of course, there, there are strong links between tax evasion and uh, corruption in many cases of, you know, tax scandal, tax leaks that we've seen publicly over the past years. Uh, the introduction of automatic exchange of information has weakened down bank secrecy. Does that mean that the problem is over? No. It means that the, the problem is being, you know, th there's progress in handling the, 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 the problem. Now, what we're seeing is that for a number of, of people, uh, um, when you multiply the number of shell companies and, and to try to hide your identity, it's more difficult for bank to actually identify the owner of a bank account and then to transmit that information to, um, to the tax authority. So the, what we're dealing right now is with, you know, the loopholes of, um, of the automatic exchange of information. When you do that, yes, of course, you have a number of problems. One is it, are, do banks really comply with the automatic exchange of information? Our data suggests that most of them do, 
but a number of them do not do that either because they don't want to lose some customers or because you know the, the sanction for not complying with that automatic exchange of information is too low compared to the cost that they need to run to actually go through three, four, five layers of uh, shell companies to identify the beneficial owner. So that's one. What we need here is increased transparency. This is, of course, one of the measures we're pushing. And the other thing we need is to make sure that the autom this automatic exchange is, um, is extended to a larger class of assets. Right now, that automatic exchange of bank information works for company shares. But if you're owning, say, uh, a, a villa in Dubai, that doesn't work. If you're owning a piece of art in Freeport, that doesn't apply. If you're owning cryptos, that doesn't apply, which means that we need to extend the class of assets covered by automatic exchange of information to make sure that everything is airtight. And what, what we've seen actually, this, this is part of the loopholes uh, on the automatic exchange of tax information. Uh, what we've seen is a number of people after the introduction of that measure that switched their uh, investment from companies that were covered to real estate. So basically they stopped investing in a company and they bought a villa in Dubai, for instance. That's uh, one instance. So that's the offshore part. But then there's, of course, another problem, uh, which uh, is that once you have that information as a government, say uh, the Cayman Islands send information on Indian residents uh, having you know investments there, then it's definitely up to the government to uh, have the, the first of all the tax resources, whether the tax authority has enough human resources and, and and manpower to investigate, and then of course what is the law for this, what is the the section sanction, and what is the political dynamics. So this is also why for us it's it's a matter of offshore, but it's also a matter of domestic political will to tackle both tax evasion and of course corruption right i mean that's a, that's a fairly comprehensive uh, answer quentin thank you for that i mean you did make a very good point about how uh, those who want to evade tax are increasingly shifting uh, to real estate as a preferred asset because that's still not uh, within the ambit of automatic exchange of information that's a very uh, important thing uh, to note now, I was also wondering in the report uh, you have said when when we discussed you know the various global measures that we could consider. One is of course this a uh, two percent tax on billionaire wealth. At the same time, while uh, acknowledging that it is it might be a very ambitious thing to aim for, uh, the report also suggests that uh, there is a lot of scope for unilateral or national level measures that countries can take. And I was just wondering if you take a country like India, I and mean, I already referred to the problem of crony capitalism and so on, profit shifting is also there. Like what unilateral measures off, off the top of your head, let us say, would you suggest for a country like India to correct the tax deficits from uh, companies, MNCs, and from billionaires? That's a very good question. And of course, the preferred option for everyone is a, an ambitious global agreement because it reduces the scope for loopholes. But as we've seen over the past years, uh, there are a number of countries that are fighting for its status quo because they have vested interest in remaining at that status quo. And in that scenario, insisting on having a global agreement and doing nothing unilaterally is basically giving a veto power to tax havens. So this is why we think, and we have you know, uh, multiple examples in history 
that sometimes unilateral measures can build, uh, can help build a consensus at the global stage. And we were talking about, you know, automatic exchange of, of bank information before. Uh, this, the, the beginning of this is the USA unilaterally, you know, imposing on, on foreign banks to give information on US, on, on US residents having, you know, uh, bank accounts uh, offshore. So this is a unilateral measure. So two measures uh, that could be of interest to India. If India would like to go further in the, you know, applying the global minimum tax, they could, of course, apply a higher rate for Indian companies. But then the question is, what happens for companies that are not Indian but have, you know, a uh, activities in in India? And in that scenario, claiming the tax deficit of these multinational would be that to say, okay, in theory, that company should have paid $1 billion uh, with what we think is a, a good global minimum rate. They're paying $100 million. So there's a $900 million tax deficit in that scenario. If that foreign company has, let's say, 10% of, uh, of, of its activity in India, then under our scenario of you know, uh, claiming the tax deficit, India could claim 10% of that of that tax deficit of 900 million so that would be 90 million um, uh, to, to tax on top of what it's taxing from its indian companies and we think the same a similar scenario could apply to billionaires tax so you let's say india applied that two percent minimum tax on billionaires but let's say the us doesn't and a us billionaires has half of its wealth der deriving from activities in India. Well, India could say we, we tax half of what it should pay under that 2% global minimum agreement because half of it is in India. This, this approach is very similar to um, the global minimum tax incorporation, which means that if one country refuses to adopt a minimum tax, another one should step in to make sure that we have a global minimum tax that is applied across the board. So these are unilateral measures that we think could help along the way. And let's be frank, these unilateral measures, they will require a number of changes, tax treaty changes. So they're ambitious. But once again, ambition should be regarded as the progress that we've did, we've, did, we've made over the past 10 years. And basic, you know, tackling bank secrecy 10 years ago was unthinkable. Uh, a global minimum tax incorporation 10 years ago was unthinkable. And we think the next frontier of a global minimum tax for billionaires that for some people think unthinkable, may seem unthinkable right now, may not be in a couple of years. And actually, this is what we uh, strongly believe here at the Tax Observatory. Right. Uh, we're running out of time, Quentin. So one last question. Uh, I want your uh, quick response on it uh, before we wrap up. So this report uh, also suggests uh, increasing the global minimum corporate tax uh, from 15% uh, at present to 25%. So I'm just curious, if it did not really work at 15%, why would it work at 25%? With the data we released, we showed that the major change in tax revenue yield would be uh, the change in the rate. So this is why if you want more revenues, you need to increase the rate. But you're absolutely right. We're not only asking for the uh, minimum tax to be increased, and we're asking to be increased to 25% level because we want to have uh, a fair competition between multinational companies and uh, small and medium enterprises that often pay 
more taxes than large multinational companies. So that's on the rate. But you're absolutely right. We said that the loopholes, they may, you know, perpetuate the existing tax competition only in another form. So what we're asking is not only to increase the rate, but also to close the loopholes on substance carve-outs and on tax credits. Right. That, I think, covers most of, I think, the key points of this report. Thank you so much for your observations, uh, Quentin, and your insights on this really huge issue of tax evasion and tax avoidance, which are, as you rightly pointed out, very, very close to the central uh, issues of our time, which is to do with climate change and inequality. Thank you so much once again. Pleasure talking to you, Quentin. Thank you very much. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.